electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I come to my friends just trying to make a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Maybe everything's still too high. And that's what Fed Chief Jay Powell's fighting in his war against inflation. Every time I think prices for everything have started to go lower, including stock prices like we saw last week when they plummeted, we get a nice bounce. Dow gaining 641 points, S&P jumping 2.45%, NASDAQ pulling 2.5%. Yep, it strikes me that the Fed's still got a ton of work to do if we're going to get inflation under control. And make no mistake, that's the only way that this bear market truly comes to an end. Now, according to the great market historian Larry Williams, the average bear market lasts roughly 180 days. We're at day 190. That's how long it's been since the Fed declared war on inflation last November, although it didn't really get serious until this year. It makes you want to believe today's the major trend, not a minor court. But until the Fed makes more progress, I don't believe the decline is over. And you need to lighten up on days like today, as we did with my charitable trust, as investing club members know all too well. What needs to go down more? Let's start with oil. Our government's approach to pushing down the price of crude is totally unserious. President Biden would rather go hat in hand to Saudi Arabia than make nice with domestic producers here in America. The White House has a schizophrenic attitude toward oil. They don't want new pipelines on environmental grounds, but they also want to get energy inflation under control because high gasoline prices are lethal to getting reelected. Even without doing anything else, Biden could at least suspend the Jones Act so that foreign ships can bring oil from Louisiana and Texas to New England, where it's really needed. Right now, those tankers need to be American, and most of the fleet is foreign. Instead, we hear about a tax holiday for gasoline, 18 cents. Kind of like the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, tiny temporary attempts to deal with a much bigger problem. Sometimes I wish they would just call me in so I could tell them the oil industry is not the enemy. They want a lot of what Biden wants, but they don't know how to ask, and he doesn't know how to tell. 
I'm inviting David Faber on tonight to talk about his documentary on ExxonMobil and see if there's any way to get the most visible sign of inflation down. Can Biden ever sit down with Americans who happen to be involved with fossil fuels, or can he only sit down with Saudis? Another reason why inflation is so ingrained, take the breathtaking news from home-building giant Lennar this morning. It had amazing earnings, but then proceeded to tell you how the future won't be as great as the past. So far, so good for, for Jay. Lennar highlights one of the strongest housing markets in the country for the last few years in Seattle. Listen to this. While market fundamentals with limited land supply and low inventory remain extremely strong, buyers have pushed back for a reset in pricing. So far, so good for Jack, right? Meaning despite land shortages, buyers are saying no. They go on. The higher priced and highly sought locations around Seattle have seen a significant pullback in sales in May and early June. Wow, that's that's terrific from an inflation perspective. They continue. This pullback is a result of both continued price appreciation in the first quarter, causing concern over home values being overpriced and stock market corrections, which had a direct impact on employee stock compensation plans, and not, not to mention higher interest rates. Yep. In short, higher interest rates, lower stock market, they are doing their job, causing consumers to pull in their horns. It's all good for the Fed so far. Except one problem. After all that negativity and caution, we learn this, quote, once again, in this market, we are at prices that are still significantly higher than the year ago, period. Higher. So after that higher rates, declining stock prices, lower price adjustments, we still haven't popped the bubble. Scarce rentals and greater household formation inexorably drive home prices higher. So, in other words, all of this stuff that I read that made me feel like, you know what? We are going to be seeing a top in interest rates sometime soon. Wrong. Just wrong. There is good news in this report, though. There are a lot of rich towns where Lennar's building. When I was out west in Silicon Valley, I heard many execs how they intended to pull up stakes from their home turf and move to some of these towns. And the ones that were mentioned, Atlanta, Charleston, Nashville, Reno, cities like in Colorado. This pattern is consistent with what Lennar is saying. Why are these tech companies moving? Well, there you know, simply aren't enough engineers in Silicon Valley, so wage inflation is nuts. And because there are so many potential employers, these engineers have all the leverage. So the companies would rather move to new cities where there are fewer potential employers and people can't job hop as easily. Job hop. Remember that term. That's wage inflation. Oddly, these new wealthy cities are a godsend for Jay Powell because he needs to break still one more cycle. Wage inflation. And the tech industry is finally doing something about it. It's walking. I predict the first mass layoffs will be in, of all places, Silicon Valley. As the larger companies migrate to cheaper locations and the smaller companies struggle to raise money. Beyond housing, J-PAL needs stocks lower in order to beat inflation. But the things aren't totally static. I mean, take Kellogg today, right? Kellogg got, like many companies you're going to see, Kellogg got fed up with their low stock price. Didn't seem like they could do anything. So they decided to break up into three companies, a global snacking international breakfast play, a North American and, and Caribbean cereal play, and a plant-based foods play. Now, I'm all in for this is there's strong demand for each of these products. We know remote work generates a ton of snack demand, including a love for Pringles and Cheez-Its, which I actually insist is real food, not just colored facsimiles. My kids vehemently disagree with that. 
The market liked the Kellogg breakup. The stock valued almost 2%. But the more I dug into it, the more I realized that people like it mainly because the company's been able to put through big price increases. Once again, the food shortage has forced processed food companies to pass on their cost increases to the consumer. And that is very bad news for the Fed's war on inflation. Like homes, you need food prices to be rolled back. Kellogg's acting like that's not going to happen. Hey, they know. They're the food company. By the way, I do like the Kellogg breakup as the remaining company will keep its solid dividend when you put them all together. And I think the plant-based spinoff could end up getting acquired by any packaged food player that wants to diversify away from the processed stuff. But mostly I like it because it can put through all the price increases at once because Kellogg's got such a good brand name. From the Fed's perspective, I argue that the stock market is the most intractable beast of all. I don't like it, but if Powell wants to beat inflation, he needs stocks to keep going lower, not higher like today, because the wealth effect is so potent. In recent years, bountiful gains in the stock market have allowed the winners to spend like crazy. If Powell can get this market to go down and stay down, repealing much of those gains, then the rich are less likely to spend aggressively, and a lot of people are more likely to remain in the workforce when they might otherwise have retired. But this market, it just refuses to roll down and play dead. A total affront to what J-Pal wants. You know me, I'm always in favor of higher stock prices because you have a portfolio and I want you to make money. However, I've lived through enough tightening cycles and I know that this has to happen before Powell can declare victory. That's why right now the best outcome would be for the averages to come down quickly so we can just get it over with. Powell's probably hoping today's action is just another temporary bull spike in a broader bear market. The bottom line? Powell had better hope this run won't last, or else those beach house prices, new construction jobs, Lennar homes, processed food stocks, and oil prices won't be going down and staying down anytime soon. Let's go to Stacy in North Carolina. Stacy. Oh, yeah, Jim from North Carolina. How are you? My Good. Long time listener, first time caller. The stuff Excellent. I'm asking about today has been wavering between 170 and 175 for a few weeks. It's 52-week highs at 233 and has a yield of near 3.5. The ticker is UPS. Is it a good time to buy or let it run? The stock has come down a great deal. It got that contract extension that I was so worried about. So the answer is, Stacy, yes. 3.48 yield, Cal Tomei, contract, 13 times earnings. Call me a buyer. All right. Pal better hope this run won't last, or else those beach houses prices, new construction jobs, Lennar homes, and yes, processed food stocks and oil won't be going down and staying down anytime soon. He needs that. Let's get it over with. On Mad Tonight, you called in and asked me about Goodyear, and I invited the CEO to join us in the show to break down the latest because the stock has plummeted. So I'm sitting down with the company's top brass to make sense of the recent action in the stock. Then two analysts two price target cuts. I'm taking a bite of sweet green to make sense of how Wall Street is viewing unprofitable growth stories in this environment that you happen to like to go to. Plus, the oil patch has become one of the hottest sectors in the economy. So that lets me sit down with my squawk on the street colleague, David Faber, to discuss what he's learned in his upcoming documentary on Exxon. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? 
Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visited visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. What are we doing the sick rules now that everybody's worried about a potential recession? Take Goodyear Tire and Rubber, the dominant player in the tire industry. When Goodyear reported just over a month ago, the headline numbers were excellent. But that operating cash flow number, it came in much weaker than expected and really tanked the stock. Given that the auto industry tends to get hurt when the Fed slams the brakes on the economy, Wall Street took a glass-half-empty approach to the quarter. Goodyear stock plunged 10% in response. Since then, it's kept drifting lower. Even after today's bounce, is less than a dollar above its 52-week low. At these levels, Goodyear is selling for less than six times this year's earnings estimates, which tells me that money managers don't have much confidence in those numbers. They're too worried about the consequences of this Fed-mandated recession we talk about. I wonder if Wall Street judges the stock too harshly. We've got the mother of all car shortages right now, so even if demand falls off, that doesn't necessarily mean Goodyear will take a hit. But don't take it from me. Let's check in with Rich Kramer. No relation. The chairman and CEO of Goodyear Tire and Rubber to get a better sense of where his company's headed. Mr. Kramer, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you, Jim. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, Rich, first of all, before we get to the uh, numbers, uh, I have in front of me a 70% sustainable material tire. If you ask my kids and pretty much anyone of a younger generation what the thing that they hate the most is pal- miles high tire piles. This could be the end of that if you can make this in scale, correct? You're, you're, Jim, you're, you're absolutely right. And I have to tell you, like your kids as a company, we're so proud of, of uh, that tire in particular and the progress we made to get to 70% sustainable on our way to 100%. That's our goal by 2030. And and really, focusing on the environment is something that our team here at Goodyear 
is so energized about as well, just like your kids. Now, let me ask you, uh, is there any reason to believe that it, but you have, you're a technolo- technology company, that this doesn't have the technology that I want to have a good year? No, absolutely not. Uh, that tire that you have there, it's not in production yet. As you know, that's a, that's a prototype right. that we've put together. But we've had that on the road. It has the performance requirements. It will have all the performance, safety, and ride and handling expectations that, uh, that, you, would, uh, that you would expect from Goodyear. They're going to be there. Well, if I were a Ford or a GM, I would say I got to put orders in here, Richard, because there are going to be younger people who will ask for this because that's what the new generation is about. Well, Jim, I, I agree with you. And as we think about scope one, scope two, scope three, and how Goodyear can help our customers, I think this is an excellent example of how we plan on doing that. Well, let me ask you, I know that when we had Mark Benioff on recently, he talked about your relationship. Uh, and it seemed like that it's, it's bearing a lot of fruit. Now, that's a long-term thing, but what can a Goodyear do with a sales force? Well, and look, Mark's a great guy. He was very kind to mention of, you know, Jim, we are, in the end, a customer and consumer-focused business. And the tools that Salesforce brings to us helps us understand what our customers want and how we can design product solutions and business models, whether they're an individual or whether they're a fleet, how we can help them succeed. And that's what those tools do for us by helping us get those, those, those insights that allow us to compete better than those that we have to meet in the marketplace. So that would be aftermarket typically to uh, to truckers, to car owners. How did, who are you appealing to? Uh, you know, Jim, all the above. As you know, we sell to the original equipment makers, but we also sell to individual consumers and in trying to understand what they need, when they need it, where they need it. Remember, we play in the premium tier, the mid tier, and even the, the lower value tier. So understanding what those consumer wants that's what those tools help us do. And to your point, Jim, we are the biggest uh, fleet provider for tires out there for the big trucking companies. We focus on cost per mile for them. We focus on uptime. We do it with about 2,500 truck service centers around the U.S. And we do it with a set of digital tools that are increasingly allow us to be proactive to tell them when those maintenance items are going to happen before they do and have breakdowns on the road. All these tools help us to be a better supplier and a solutions provider for our customers. All right, so Rich, let, let's go back to the numbers. The top line, everything looked great, and then I saw the operating cash flow. Was that an issue of just telegraphing? Because it did take my breath away. I said, oh, my, they're going to hit the stock. We had them on. I really believe, because I love the merger with Cooper. Was that just something that was that if it had been telegraphed would not have hurt the stock so badly? Well, you know, Jim, it's interesting because I have to say, you know, business is it was strong. It remains strong. Mobility's up. As you know, vehicle miles traveled are up. The Fourth of July holidays coming and travel is set to be at record highs on the road again, all of which obviously benefits us. I will tell you on the cash flow side, really, you know, we did have a usage in Q1. But Q1 for Goodyear in our industry is always negative. It follows a really strong fourth quarter of collections and and sellout. But in Q1, Jim, we always produce more than we sell as we build some inventory. Clearly, we've had the price impact in there in accounts receivable and even raw materials and finished goods and inventory. Then we have the additive uh, impact of Cooper, who also has that same sort of cyclical nature. And then add to that, and we did, we did say this ahead of time on our fourth quarter call, 
that we were going to rebuild inventory post-COVID because, as you know, like many industries, our inventory was much lower than normal. So we had about a $200 million incremental inventory build for rebuilding inventory. And we did telegraph that was going to happen. Okay. Now, I mean, unfortunately for Jay Powell, everybody's got to cover their costs. you got to cover your costs. Uh, is there going to be price resistance at a certain point, or do you have to continue to raise prices just to be able to meet the raw costs, which I know are not your fault? They keep going up. Yeah, I, I think, Jim, that, that has been the case, and I think we've demonstrated in Q4 and in Q1, as we said we would, an ability to get price and mix ahead of not only raw materials, but darn near covering transportation, energy, and labor. And those costs continue to move up. <sighs> And as evidenced by, uh, in the U.S., uh, an announced price increase on June 1, uh, uh, we do have to go out there and make sure we can recover those increasing costs. Having said that, Jim, like every product, as you know, and listen, I've been through about five cycles of these already, there's always a point that, uh, that, that diminished demand comes into play. But I would also tell you, you know, there's a few things different this time. Uh, clearly, you know, replacement demand may go down. We're better positioned with Cooper to deal with any uh, movements of volume from premium down to value brands. That's number one. And number two, and you know this, unlike uh, uh, times in the past, really the OE demand, the OE production hasn't come back yet because right. of chips. So we see even in a down environment that OE demand is going to continue to increase as they too have to rebuild some inventory. So that, that may give us uh, uh, you know, some cushion should, should we hit that recession that everyone's talking about. Yeah, well, look, we don't want the recession, but we know that Jay Powell wants prices down, doesn't want price increases. I don't blame him. He's a Fed chief. But businesses have to make money or else they can't employ people. I want to thank Rich Kramer, Goodyear chairman, president and CEO. Great to see you, Rich. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for having me. Of course. Mad Money's back here for the break. Coming up, it's a tasty face-off. The Bulls and the Bears feast on sweet green. Next. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. We've reached the point in this bear market where the formerly bullish analysts are being forced to reckon with the fact that the price targets they have for many stocks are just way too high. That's why we've seen a ton of price target cuts lately. A healthy development that happens to be unique this to happen if you're ever going to put in a bottom. Even if it's that kind of bottom. 
But not all price targets are created equal, and I think it's important to be able to tell the difference. This happens all the time. We talk about this, Jeff Marks and I talk about this constantly when we're picking stocks for the charitable trust. See, there's what we call a trim, a trim where an analyst will cut a price target that's comically high down to a level that's still well above where the stock's currently trading. These guys are either in denial about the new reality, right, because stocks have come down so much, or they have a ton of conviction in the underlying story. So they're only trimming their price targets because the old ones are just impossible to justify. Then you've got the deeper cuts, and these are really something. They mean that you are about to experience something really nasty. The analyst who takes the price target down to a level that's more in line with the current action, acknowledging that things have changed and the underlying story looks materially worse than it previously did. And then finally, oh my God, they're the outright downgrades. Sell, 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 Where they also take the rating from buy to neutral or neutral to sell. This is the most negative, uh, uh, although at this point, you've got to wonder about the timing. Where were these sell, sell, sell. downgrades six months ago? Sometimes you'll see the full spectrum of price target cuts on display in a single stock that's visible and understandable, and that's what we're going to do tonight. So we're going to talk about Sweetgreen. Yes, Sweetgreen, the fast casual chain of salad restaurants that had the great misfortune of coming public last November, right before the IPO window slammed shut. At least they got it done. Sweetgreen's plummeted from an intraday high of 56, which I told you not to chase, on its first day of trading, down to 11 and change. You hear that? 56 to 11 and change. And now that it's stuck in the low double digits, the price target cuts, they're, are, they're relentless. They're coming endlessly. I can't blame anyone for turning this uh, against the stock here. Sweet Greens is an unprofitable growth story in an environment where Wall Street has little respect for growth and loathes anything that can't put up positive earnings. I told you to avoid the stock when it came by. I told you again to avoid it in December when it was trading at 33. Nothing that happened in the last six months has made me change my mind. In other words, $11 doesn't fetch a buy from me. But I'm bringing up Sweetgreen because recently the stock got hit with two price target cuts that reflect very different attitudes. Last Wednesday, Andrew Charles from Cowan cut his price target from 28, remember stocks at 11, from 28 to 22. That's what I call a trim, given that the stock was trading at just 13 at the time. In other words, it's still pretty bullish. Then the very next day, Citigroup's John Tower cut his price target in half from 32 to 16 in a move that feels a lot more realistic to me. Tonight, I want to walk you through these dueling price target cuts because they can teach you a great deal about how the analysts are approaching beaten down growth stocks in this environment. You need to know this because it'll let you know whether there's something worth owning or not. First, though, let's talk about Sweetgreen itself. In another time, I think this could have been a truly beloved stock. Sweetgreen's got an ethos. They're all about giving people healthy, organic food that's locally sourced. They've got a great digital platform. They've been expanding like crazy to the point where you could easily think of this one as a regional and national growth story. I've got three of them near me. Unfortunately, Sweetgreen came public right about uh, right before unprofitable growth stories went out of style in the Wall Street fashion show. These guys have very impressive same store sales numbers, but they're also losing lots of money, making this exactly the kind of stock that's been abandoned by the market. My discipline tells me you don't touch something like Sweetgreen when inflation is rampant and the Fed's slamming the brakes on the economy. It doesn't help that their salads are very expensive. You can get away with 15 bucks for a salad in the old days, but it really doesn't fit the current moment. Kind of reminds me of Dutch Bros, a cult too expensive for the time, those afternoon drinks. Sure enough, Sweetgreen stock's been obliterated, down nearly 65% from where I warned you away from it just last December, down nearly 80% from its peak on the day of the IPO. Anyone who's bet on this thing has had their guts ripped out. They typically bought it, by the way, 
because they like to eat there. How many times do I have to tell you that's not a reason to own a stock? Which brings me to these dueling price target cuts. Last Wednesday, Cowan took the price target from 2022, but they kept their outperform rating on Sweetgreen, even naming the stock one of their best small to mid-cap ideas. Man, if Sweetgreen is a good idea, I don't know what a bad idea looks like. To be fair, Cowan's got a thesis here. They see Sweetgreen as a COVID recovery play with people coming back to the cities. And they also point out that there's a lot less produce inflation than protein inflation, which might make their salads more enticing on the cost front. Cowan likes the ethos, talking about the potential of transparent food sourcing, guest-facing technology, the two structural restaurant industry megatrends, to which I say, you could have made the same argument a year ago. And it hasn't exactly worked out well for Sweetgreen's shareholders. You can almost feel the frustration in this note. The company put up excellent, a uh, couple of excellent quarters, yet hasn't gotten any credit for it. And hey, if this were June of 2021, the bulls at Callan would be right. They'd have a great argument. But the market's tastes have changed in the last year, and it's much harder for a stock like Sweetgreen to get any love in this new environment. Now, the next day, we got that much more bearish price target cut from Citigroup. That almost read like a rebuttal, frankly. Even though they left the rating at neutral, they cut their price target for Sweetgreen in half from 32 to 16 as part of a broader set of number cuts for restaurant chains that, that own most of their locations rather than franchising them. I would have cut it to a sell if I were them. Citi's argument is straightforward. Inflation is going to do a number on these companies and their stocks have already come down. So the price target should come down, too, specifically for Sweetgreen. This is a long term growth story at a time of rampant inflation. They know that Sweetgreen trades on its future earnings prospects many years down the road and high inflation erodes the value of those future dollars. Same reason all unprofitable growth stocks in every industry, tech, department stores, it doesn't matter, retail, They've all been annihilated. More specifically, Citi doesn't like that Sweetgreen's investing heavily to grow its business right now. Given the lack of earnings or free cash flow, they think this chain could be in real trouble if we get an exogenous event that hits restaurant demand, like a dangerous new COVID variant or, say, a recession. However, even with these negatives in mind, Citi only cut the price target to 16 because Sweetgreen's same-store sales growth is truly impressive, and they're putting up new stores left and right. My view. When you see something like Cowan's price target trim, understand that it's not bearish. It's a clear case of a bullish analyst digging in his heels. I think Citi's aggressive price target cut is a lot more realistic. But the bottom line, listen, in the end, this is a bear market, not a bull market. We had a bull market rally day within a bear market. In a bear market, you do not stick your neck out to pick at hated stocks. You buy a McDonald's. Right now, Wall Street loves earnings, cash flow, dividends. Sweetgreen's got none of those things. You're fighting the Fed and the tape if you try to bottom fish in this one. And that's a recipe for portfolio destruction, even though I like the place a ton. But then again, I am no longer the key demographic. David in South Dakota. David. Booyah, Jim. How are you? Booyah, David. I am well. How are you? I am doing great. Thank you so much for all you do. I am just a first-time investor this year, so I haven't made a lot of money, but you have saved me a lot of money, so thank you. Well, I am so glad that you're involved. Let's be cautious. It's not a great market, but when we get inflation under control and China calms down, we're going to be saying, why didn't we buy stocks? So let's go to work. Yes, sir. So I have a stock here. It's got a dividend of 2.5. It's back to its pre-pandemic price, but at a P.E. of 19. Is Texas Roadhouse a good buy? Wow, it's a really good company. They did lose, tragically, their fantastic founder, CEO. Um, 
It is still at 17 times earnings, a little too high for me. I know this sounds like I'm splitting hairs, but do you take that down to 15 times earnings? And I'll tell you, David, that's where I want to buy it. Let's go to Norman in California, please. Norman. Howdy, Jim. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Oh, great, Norman. Thank you for checking in. What's going on? Hey, are high-dividend yield stocks a good bet in an inflationary environment? And if that's the case, uh, what do you think of my stock, Jack in the Box? All right, Jack in the Box, in the old days, before interest rates shot higher, and they really did, a 3% yield would protect you. Now even a 5% yield doesn't protect you, as I saw from American Eagle Outfitters for my charitable trust, where I thought I would be safe with a high yield. It's not helping. I have to say the same thing about Jack in the Box. Okay, in a bear market, you do not stick your neck out to pick at hated stocks. And even though the company's terrific and the product is great, Sweet Green has none of the things that this market loves. You're fighting the Fed and the tape if you try to bottom fish in this one. It can go up a couple of bucks, but then you gotta go. Much more Mad Money at. I'm sitting down with my squawk on the street co-anchor, David Faber, ahead of the release of his amazing Exxon documentary, Ari on CBC, tomorrow to get his biggest takeaways. Then, the Russo-Ukraine war has certainly hurt our economy. But there's another threat out there that I think is dragging us down even more, at least when it comes to the stock market. I'll reveal it. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Well, we could take you up there. Yeah. We'll put a hard hat on you and some gloves. We'll take you anywhere you want to go. This is very light crude. This would be another form of blue hydrogen. I'm actually third generation ExxonMobil. We're examining whether ExxonMobil is serious about lowering its carbon emissions. You say you want to be a leader. Do you really think you are, that ExxonMobil is a leader in that area? I think we will be, absolutely. And finding out whether its investors are willing to pay for a faster energy transition. I'm talking to shareholders this week, and you just don't get the mandate. What would get you there? These guys need to be punched in the face. Oh, my. This is so good. This is a clip from ExxonMobil at the Crossroads. That's a much-anticipated documentary from my partner, CNBC's own David Faber, and arguably the best business journalist we have, maybe out there entirely. This is the crazy time to be in the oil and gas business. Last year, Exxon's board lost a proxy fight against a previously unknown climate-focused investment firm called Engine Number 1, resulting in three environmentalists joining their board of directors. Suddenly, the fossil fuel industry had to care about going green. Then things got crazier uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine. The price of oil and gas went through the roof. Now, many of the politicians who used to worry about the environment now want the industry to pump more oil, keep the price down while they're hoping one day they won't even be needed. You can hear about all these challenges when David's documentary airs tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Don't take it from me. Let's go straight to the source. The man I am proud to call my partner, David. Welcome to Mad Money. Thanks. It's great to be here. A little weird, a little yeah, weird to be together, true. but not where we usually no. are at the New York Stock Exchange. But, but I saw Jeff Upton. I saw Darren Wood, and I said to myself, how could a company that John T. Rockefeller founded, the most corporate, least in touch company on earth, have a proxy fight and lose? They lost. Yeah. How's that possible? Come on. You know, because there was a lot of pent up. Well, first of all, I mean, there's so many different elements. Right. The ESG yeah, but you mandate, cover, right? right? The ESG mandate for many of the big index funds, right. which control so much of the vote. And if one went, many of the others had to follow. But as well, there was a lot of um, pent up uh, anger, I think, amongst their shareholder base for a lack of transparency through the years that resulted in, in, the, in that vote, in that incredibly surprising uh, result. 
And listen, I have a lot to thank for it because it's the reason I think in many ways that we were able to get access that never would have been imagined previously. But you're obviously not a patsy. I mean, you're talking to Darren Wood there. You are talking to the arguably the most powerful person in the oil business, and you're basically asking if he's a believer, a liar? Is he, a, is he a capable? We didn't ask him if he's a liar. No, that's true, that but we're going to play a tape in a second yeah, that makes it question about whether they're, they were climate deniers. That's true, and that's, that's a part of this. But really, what, you know, there's two things we tried to do here, Jim. One is just to show people what ExxonMobil's about, right. because as you point out, perhaps the most relevant corporation in the world for the <laughs> longest period of time. Right. Nobody knows much about it from John D. Rockefeller Because well, it's on. been cloistered. Yes. You were never supposed to know. That was the whole point of Rockefeller. No one was to know. And by the way, that culture continued right, right through Lee Raymond, right through Rex Tillerson, okay. former secretary of state. But that's changed. And we're the beneficiary of that. And so will people who watch this documentary tomorrow night because they'll actually see ExxonMobil up close for really what is the first time. Right. Uh, and then, of course, we try to answer this big question. Are they serious about combating climate change? Are they serious about getting their carbon well, footprint down? And how are they going to adjust their business? Well, we've got a great clip that will tell you the seriousness of how you approach this. Why don't we play that one about climate change? It matters in what the culture of that company is. Is the company going to still hunker down and do everything possible to make maximum profits without really tackling climate? Or have they really turned a corner? Have they really gotten some religion? Do you think you pay a price not throwing your predecessor overboard, for lack of a better term, or at least just somehow meeting the objections that some of these legislators have in terms of taking you as a really trusted partner? I would say judge us on the work that we're doing and what we're doing going forward. I mean, we've got to focus on how we're going to address this problem. We're doing work today and advancing very large-scale projects on those needed technologies. because We're engaged with governments all around the world to reduce emissions, while at the same time, uh, providing reliable and affordable energy, which is so critical to people's standards of living all around the world. Right answer. Yeah. Yeah. Really? The you right think answer? so? I mean, yeah. I, listen, I'm going to let people judge for themselves based on the questions we ask and the answers we got from Mr. Woods, from Jeff Ubbin, the board member, from the critics of the company as well, Jim. And I think people will be able to form their own opinion. Well, one of the things that people forget, uh, and it's because the stock's been a liar, is they are a great American company. And you got to go to Guyana, which is a remarkable place because it's the way we frack in the West. Frack doesn't last. Tell us about this find. You know, I think you're right. In the, uh, I know you're right because we, we saw it up close, how good ExxonMobil is at what they do. You and I sit every morning on Squawk in the Street together and talk about, by the way, technology companies. And yet we never think about these kinds of companies as technology companies, but they are. Of course they are. I mean, horizontal, vertical two miles, horizontal two miles, and four miles, and then meet in the middle this big. Uh, how, is, how do they even do it? This is, we got to watch it. I know we're late. I don't care if we're running late. I want you to just put it this, this uh, clip of Guyana because it's a gigantic find. It is. Actually happening with all of this equipment. We bring up a, a co-mingled stream from the reservoir, and within that, we essentially separate the oil to put onto the tankers to sell around the world. We separate the gas that we recompress and inject in their reservoir. At 340 meters long, roughly the length of three U.S. football fields, the FPSO has the capacity to hold up to two million barrels of oil, which it offloads to tankers for transport. 
at the moment, we're about half production capacity of the facility, and we've got more wells to bring on and get us up to full production. What is full production capacity for this facility? Yeah, so we usually reference about 220 kBD, and that's usually an average for the year. But on any given day, we can go as high as 230, and just depending on some of the conditions, we can actually even go a little higher than that. 230,000 barrels a day. Correct. See, versus a frack, a frack well, which is not, just not, is it insignificant versus No, although that. in the Permian, where we also visited, of course, and people will see, we saw so many of the different wells that right. they will be developing over time, Jim. But that's ExxonMobil. You saw it there, what wow. they're able to do. And by the way, as you well know, that people thought there was oil outside Guyana. They weren't sure. But they weren't sure, and a lot of companies didn't get there. I know other companies that gave up. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, you didn't give up. This is remarkable, especially because I have to tell you of all the companies that I thought no one could ever get into. It's ExxonMobil. Great job, partner. That's our very own David Faber, the documentary ExxonMobil at the Crossroads. Premieres tomorrow night at 8 p.m. That's Eastern. Wow. I can't wait to see it. Thanks, buddy. Mad Money's back in. Right. Coming up next. Let's make money together. What do we got? Kramer's bringing the thunder and answering your burning questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round. Before we get to The Lightning Round, I want to tell you about a very exciting interview we'll have tomorrow on Mad Money. I'm sitting down with the one and only Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Meta. We'll talk about everything from the future of the old Facebook to whether you'll soon be taking your meetings in the metaverse. I don't think you want to miss this one. And now it is time. It is time for the lightning round of Kramer's Mad Money. Yes, Red Merkel's one to the And then the light round is over. Are you ready? Ski tags over the light round. Let's start with Deepak in Florida. Deepak. What do you think about AAL long term? Okay, long term, different from short term. Long term, I don't like the airline. Short term, this stock is too low given the fact that people are traveling. Josh in Indiana, Josh. Hello, sir. Mega booyah. Oh, I like that. I'll double, I'll double that. What's going on? Well, a quick shout out to all my friends and family at the ticker tape. I know they're watching this show. Love them. I gotta, Love them. I What's I, up? I got a, I got a good one for you. Now, this has been beaten down after government threat to profit. All right. But they got clean shops. They're always stocked. And MRO makes my I like cars. Marathon because I like the oils. Travel Trust owns them. Don't get greedy. Bye, bye, bye. Let's go to John in Texas. John. Hi, Jim. Love your show. Oh, thank uh, you. The company I want to ask you about, um, they look great on paper. They trade about five times earning. They have a 9.5% yield. Now, in 2019, they did cut their dividend, and the market punished them for it. But I'm curious to get your thoughts about Lumen Technology, ticker L-U-M-N. Don't trust. Don't trust. Yes, PE multiple too low. It's, it's often a sign that things aren't going to go right. I'm going to have to say no to that one. David in Georgia. David. Hey, Jim, how are you? I am good. How are you, David? I'm doing great. I've been trading this stock, TRCT, and I want to invest in it. I know they don't make any money yet, but they have an innovative Well, then we're uh, not going to recommend PRCT when we've got medical device companies that are as good as EW that are very, very low. That's what we're thinking about. Devin in New York. Devin. Hey, Jim, what's going on? I don't know. How about you, Devin? Not bad. Uh, surviving, you know, doing what we can. My question is about MP Materials Corp. 
Well, look, um, MP materials, what? these are rare earth materials. The company's done a very good job. We've had them on a bunch of times, and I do like them. Let's go to Larry in Louisiana. Larry. Hi, Jim. Appreciate you taking my call. Of and course. Thank you to you and everyone on your team behind the scenes. We have a good team. The best team in the business. What's up? So I'm a club member, and I've been following you uh, since you were drinking turkey-flavored Jones soda on this show about 12, <laughs> 15 years ago. <laughs> I love it. I'm a dividend growth investor, and I'm interested in your thoughts on a stock that severely underperformed its sector this year. Ticker is T-R-O-W. This company is radically undervalued because it happens to be an excellent company, incredibly well run, with a good yield, and I am not going to walk away from a 4.3% yield of T-Row price. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Everyone knows that the war in Ukraine has done immense damage to the global economy. President Biden even talks about the Vlad Putin tax on our oil. But in truth, when you consider the stock market, the real profit killer right now is China, not Russia. Let me put it this way. Apple gets almost 19% of its sales from the People's Republic of China. We have no idea how they're doing under the rolling lockdowns imposed by the government to contain COVID. We know Apple's taking share in the Chinese market, and their brand is beloved. But as I read over the research, it became clear that if China remains shut down, then Apple's going to have an even larger shortfall than the $4 to $8 billion sales forecast they've already talked about. As we get closer to the end of the month, it wouldn't shock me if the company needs to issue some sort of warning about its Chinese business. That's a problem. Apple's a $2 trillion company with a stock that sells for 22 times earnings, a nice premium to the stock market. It used to trade at a discount to the S&P 500, but because of, say, the accessories like the watch and the AirPods, and most importantly, the subscription services, you have real diversification that can justify a higher multiple. However, if the lockdowns in China hit the brakes on Apple's revenue growth, there'll be some enterprising analysts, multiple, who downgrade the stock. This thing's already fallen from 180 down to the 130s. So I think the bulk of the weakness is already baked in. It'll be worth buying after the next round of downgrades, Travel Trust owns it. We're just holding. Of course, it's not just Apple. Nike's the same. They get roughly 20% of the revenue from China, so it would be catastrophic if that business just vanished. This morning, Baird published a piece with a catchy title that asked if China might be better than feared. Maybe it's only down 5%. But Chinese weakness has already knocked Nike's stock down from 179 to 108. Any signal that these ill-advised lockdowns are coming to an end could cause this thing to jump maybe 50 points. And if Baird is right that they haven't taken that much of a hit, then maybe Nike can revisit its old highs. How about Starbucks? Like the others, it has ongoing business away from the lockdown cities. But Starbucks has more than 5,000 stores in China, and their greatest growth comes from putting up new locations in so-called Tier 2 and Tier 3 cities. These are more likely to be shut down as part of this COVID initiative that the Chinese have. That said, the stock of Starbucks is down more than 40%, in large part because of its Chinese exposure. So any good news from the Chinese Communist Party could really turn things around. Don't get me started on tech, where the lockdowns hit both the supply side 
and the demand side. NVIDIA took a $500 million hit on China. Micron sold very few of the chips there, something that's hurt DRAM and flash pricing. AMD has similar exposure. People clearly aren't ready for it, although I think the company's doing incredibly well. Then there's Qualcomm, which we had on just last week. It is regarded as the Chinese handset play, even if it's done a terrific job to diversify away from mobile into businesses like the auto industry and the Internet of Things, a lot more exposure to Europe and America. We have apparel companies with just 3% of their sales in China, companies like Ralph Lauren, Levi's, but they want to expand there too. General Motors delivered 600,000 cars in China in the first quarter of the year. I bet they're doing a lot worse in the second quarter. Of course, the Chinese government remains an enigma. We have no idea when or if they'll change course. They could just easily import mRNA vaccines from the West. It would make a huge difference for them. I think the current situation is untenable, though. And the moment China gets like the rest of the world and ends the lockdowns, these stocks will be the buys in this entire market. But in the meantime, the second quarter ends in 10 days. Anyone with lots of Chinese business will see their order books fall short. If you don't own them already, at this point, you might want to wait. Although they've come down to levels where I think the risk reward is very much now in the favor of the bulls. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.